Father, we do pray for Mike and Gail's daughter Kimberly and ask that a godly result will come out of all this. We, we know and we've just talked about in recent weeks the fact that all things work together for good to those who love God. Father, I can't see how any good can come out of this, but I've said that so many times in my life, and so many times you have shown good coming out of horrible circumstances that I cannot now lose heart, but I'm not in the circumstance, and I, I pray for them as they're struggling through this time that they'll find hope and confidence in you even when they can't see any reason for confidence in the circumstances. Um, work in the judge's heart. Uh, work in Kimberly's husband's heart. Bring about major change in them, Father, so that um, they will come to see a godly way through all of this. <clears throat> Protect the children. And bring something beautiful even out of such circumstances. Um, the trauma in the home is, is affecting them even when we can't see it, so we, pre we plead with you for their sake too. Now we ask for our time together, and thank you for it, that you would meet with us and sustain us. Let us see the glory of Jesus. For his name's sake we pray. Amen. Okay, sure. Ooh, I lost my power. <clears throat> Here. Okay. Hebrews 9. Uh, we're we're going to start at verse 15, and that will take us to 10.18. That's kind of a climactic point in the book. The, uh, the book, as, I, as far as I can tell, has two major parts. It has the argument for the supremacy of Christ, and then it has the application. What do you do with that? And that that first major part begins at 1.4 and goes all the way to 10.18. Then from 10.19 on to whatever the precise end of the book is, um, uh, you have the application. So uh, we're coming right to the climax of his, of his major point, the supremacy of Jesus. And it's going to be, in fact, uh, we introduced this last time, it is the fact that in chapters 9, 1 through 10, 18, the author is, is expounding the last verse that we read on the New Covenant. So if you turn back to chapter 8 and verse 12, he's expounding this, because I will forgive their iniquities and their, and their lawless acts, I will remember no more. I want to emphasize to you, that remember no more doesn't mean God forgets. God cannot forget. I, I got challenged Sunday morning on whether God forgets or not. And he said, God does forget. I, whether you agree with it or not, God does forget. I said, well, that's okay. You can say that, but the scripture never says that. It says he doesn't remember. And uh, others forget, but God doesn't remember. The point is not synonymous, it's different. Uh, an omniscient person cannot forget. <laughs> be a contradiction of his very nature. Are you with me here? So, so um, when he says, their, um, their sins I will remember no more, 
It means what it means when he remembered Noah. It means what it means in, in Deuteronomy. I, I be, first became aware of this remembering in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses says, remember all the way that the Lord led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Remember the manna. Remember that your clothes didn't wear out. Folks, <laughs> how many times now later in your life do you smell something that reminds you of something that happened 30, 40, 50 years ago? Yes? Um, those people could not possibly forget the taste of the manna. They couldn't possibly forget that their sandals and clothes didn't wear out. That would be an, an unforgettable experience for them. But, but Moses says, remember what does it mean to remember? It's in their minds, they know it, but you remember when you act upon what you know. Are, are you with me here? When God remembered Noah, it wasn't that it, it had slipped his mind and he didn't know where Noah was. Or, oh, goodness sakes, he's out there and I haven't been taking care of him. Gracious me, i got to get getting get, get here and take care of this poor old fellow. He begins to act. He goes into overt action to deliver Noah. So he sends the wind and it starts to dry up the waters and they run off into the sea and so forth. Does this make sense to you? So when God says, uh, I will remember their, their sins no more, it means he won't use them against us. Um, and if that's the case, this becomes the theme verse for chapter 9, 1 to 10, 18. We looked last week at 10, 17, where the author quotes... The uh, uh, that that last end of the new covenant passage ten seventeen and their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. So he bookends the section. This is an oral uh, presentation. It was intended for oral presentation. So the people have to have ways of realizing when he's beginning a new sub subject, when he's ending that subject. So that's the bookend. Of it. So we're right in the middle of the exposition, and in the exposition we have the contrast between the Levitical sacrifice and Jesus' sacrifice. The Levitical sacrifice, as we saw it last time, is made in an earthly tabernacle, which can only deal with uh, fleshly ordinances, as you recall, yes? And it provides no access to God. We talked about how many barriers there were to access to God. I cannot, as an Israelite, I cannot go immediately into the presence of God. I have to have an intermediary who goes through the barriers for me. Uh, some of the barriers are permeable. Most, most of them are not. The most important ones are not. So I, I have to have an intermediary who can go in. Um, third, the sacrifices we saw in 9 and 10 can never perfect the conscience. Um, <laughs> when I sin, I, you have done this, no doubt. Surely you have. Wake up in the middle of the night and, and remember some sin you committed years ago, and it just preys on you. Yes? There was nothing in the covenant, in the Mosaic covenant, to deliver them from that. And we think we're in the same relationship as the folks in the Mosaic covenant were. Instead, we have a, a, a remedy for this conscience problem. 
And then fourth, 9.10, it deals, as we said, only with the flesh. So Jesus, by contrast, now you can look at the screen here, by contrast, Jesus deals in a perfect tabernacle, a heavenly tabernacle. <clears throat> I don't think there's a building there. Maybe there is. God knows that finite beings have to have space um, definitions. And so he might have some kind of a structure in heaven. But there are realities in heaven that the, ta that the tabernacle models. And I will, I will when, when we get there, we'll all say, well, of course, that's what that was. That's what the labor meant. Gosh, why didn't we see that? Uh, but also, his sacrifice, as we said toward the end last week, cleanses the conscience, and that's the point for us as we ended last week, 9.14. You have a right, if you're a participant in the New Covenant, you have a right purchased for you by Jesus Christ, by his bearing your sin on the cross, you have a right to a clean conscience. And no time has to elapse between your becoming aware of the guilt that you have and the cleansing. No ritual has to elapse between the time you're aware of the, of the guilt and the cleansing. You may claim it immediately. It is yours by right. And as we said last time, and I closed, I think, talking about the Lord's Supper, if you, if you take the cup of the Lord's Supper and walk away with, an, with, a, with a defiled conscience, it's because you have not remembered Jesus having talked about memory, it becomes awfully important. Do this to remember me. If Jesus' blood is weaker than your sin, then you ought to have a defiled conscience. Ox's blood was weaker than your sin. All it could deal with was the external cleansing of the, of the defilement. But Jesus' blood, if you walk away from a time like the Lord's Supper... I'm not saying that the cup does anything to you uh, in reality. What I'm saying is it calls to us the symbol that, that Christ cleanses us internally, not externally. And so if I can walk away with the sup from the supper still feeling defiled in my conscience, it's either because I think my sin is more powerful than the blood of Christ or my conscience's testimony is greater than the testimony of God. Now, how do you do it? Folks, all I know is you, do, you can do it. I, I, I have practiced it for years. And when I sin and become aware of it, I, I think, okay, Lord, there's one more evidence. <laughs> the only hope I've got before you is grace and the work of Jesus. But because of the work of Jesus, I claim the cleansing. And I, re I will not entertain these assaults of my conscience anymore. I won't take them. After the, the first, I, I think I mentioned to you the first two weeks I started practicing this. It scared me to death. I hadn't had a clean conscience that long in my life. And I thought, am I searing my conscience? You know, Paul talks about people having seared consciences. And I thought, well, no, wait a minute. That wouldn't even make sense. Number one, people with seared consciences aren't, don't care about their sin. Number two, they don't appeal to God for the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. 
that maybe this is the birthright that God has given us as the children of God to have a clean conscience. And we just looked last week, at last Sunday, at that passage, who shall lay a charge against God's elect? Well, Satan. But I want you to notice this is chapter 8, yes, of Romans. Chapter 5 says, having therefore been justified by faith. The, the court has, has sat. The case has been presented. The verdict is in. And the verdict is not innocent. The verdict is righteous with the righteousness of Christ. <laughs> when Satan brings charges against God's elect, he's bringing them to the judge who has already pronounced his, the, Satan's case to be a null case. There's nothing in it. Yes, I know they've sinned, but Jesus died for it. He's the defense attorney. You go talk to him, Fred. It seems then that most of the preaching I've heard all my life assumes us to be under an old covenant. Mm -hmm. Is that not correct? Mm -hmm. We're, de we're de deathly afraid of grace. Um, if you get a chance to hear Steve Brown on the radio, he's a guy from, where is he from, Orlando? Orlando. <clears throat> Teaches at a seminary there in Orlando, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in, in Orlando. Guy knows grace. But he's got people, even in his own field, in his own theological re, uh, uh, bailiwick, attacking him. Um, and they're writing on uh, people who, who, who say they teach the doctrines of grace are writing on the dangerous doctrine of grace. Grace is a dangerous doctrine. If you haven't read Chuck's uh, book, uh, Grace Awakening, read it. One of the chapters that's so good in it um, is, is um, um, The Dangerous Doctrine of Grace. I think that's the title of it. And you ought to read that for sure. We don't want it. We don't like it. Nothing in our experience has prepared us for it. Everything that we want is I want to earn. And you, you're an American. I look around here. Everybody in here is an American as far as I know. You were you were raised to, to have to earn everything you're going to get, Richard. Well, this this means you can look forward mm -hmm. with no looking back, mm -hmm. and you can serve God. Yeah. With a pure heart. Absolutely. With, pure heart, with no fear. Yeah. My favorite professor said the same thing, but characteristically, he said it so well. He said, "We are past less and future full." We are past less and future full. So I have a question then. I think you've addressed this before, but I want to hear it again. Um, how are we to pray? I was always taught to pray praise first, but forgiveness comes in there too. So how are we supposed to pray for forgiveness? We, we know we're already forgiven, but we still sin. <laughs> Was in there too, wasn't it? Oh, she just said that, yeah. Um, yeah. Turn to uh, Colossians chapter 2. Verse 13. How many are, of our sins are forgiven? 2.13. 
How many of our sins are forgiven? All. But that must mean only our past sins. How do you know that? (laughs) But it's essential that I know the reason. Uh, I didn't have any past sins when Jesus died. The only sins he could die for are, are future sins. So he has died for my future sins. Not just the ones that are in my past. Yeah. Well, that's the point. That's that's my point. Then what do I... When, when your children had a birthday and you gave them the most longed-for present they had ever... I, you, you just can't even imagine how badly they wanted that present. You gave it to them. And they are just weeping for joy at getting the present. And then they come up to you and say, Mom... Can can you get me this for my for Christmas? Why would I get? Because I want one so bad. You don't know how bad I want one. I just gave you one. Yeah, I know, but I want one for Christmas. Can I have one? You have one. Yeah, I know, but I want one. Can I have? Would you please? Can I can I do some extra work around the house to 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 help out? Well, not yeah. The point is, why would you ask for what you already have? And where in the New Testament, other than the Sermon on the Mount, does anybody pray for the forgiveness of sins? And that's an unfair question because you don't have the resources to go look right now. The answer is no place. Why is the Sermon on the Mount like it is? Because it's dealing with the Old Covenant. Um... Turn to Matthew 5. Verse uh, 17, I think. Let's see. Uh, That's Mark. Uh, Yeah, do not think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Um, now verse 19 whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven whoever does and teaches them this one shall shall be called what what commandments yeah how do you know that well look at verse 21 You have heard that it was said to the ancients, you shall not murder. Where do Jews, to whom Jesus is speaking, uh, go to look for that commandment? In Ephesians? Yeah, yeah, Deuteronomy and Exodus. It's the law. Then he says, in between, notice that 19 comes before 20 and 20 comes before 21. Yes? Yes? So verse 20 says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness shall exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now what is a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? And where do you find it? What's Jesus talking about? No, not his righteousness. He doesn't even mention his righteousness in this sermon. What does he mention? Verse 21 Not only do you not murder, you don't even hate. 
verse 27. Not only do you not commit adultery, you don't even lust. Verse 31. Um, and not only do you not divorce, well, that one doesn't have an alternative. Uh, verse 33. <clears throat> not only do you not take oaths, uh, you don't even feel have the need to take oaths. Nobody expects you to take an oath. Why did anybody ever take an oath? Just in case they were lying. Just in case, this was a way of saying, I'm, I'm really not lying. This is the truth. That's what he means. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You should speak truth at every, at every turn. This is the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You follow this? It's not Jesus' righteousness. So if you're going to get into the kingdom, and here's, here's the point of the sermon as far as I understand it. There are books written on this subject, so I'll add one more here. Uh, as far as I understand it, he's saying if you want to get into the kingdom by the law, this is what it's going to take. In fact, turn to Matthew 7. And I, I really have to stop and get back to Hebrews very quickly. But in Matthew 7, um, what is the narrow, what is the broad gate and the easy way? That's what it leads to. But what is that way? No, not sin. Go back to Mount 520 and tell me what it is. Uh-huh. That's what it takes us to, but what is it? What I, what I want to know is, what is the way that leads to destruction? It's the Pharisees' way to righteousness. Well, it's the Pharisees' way to righteousness. I, I earn it. And that leads to destruction. There is another way. He doesn't tell us in the sermon what that other way is. It's another way. It's the way he's leading. It's the narrow gate and the, and, the, and the restricted way. It's not until Matthew 18 that he tells us, turn to Matthew 18. He tells us what that way is. Matthew 18 is famous for one passage, but it's so much more important than that one passage. It's famous for the so-called church discipline passage. But if you look at the beginning of the sermon... Uh, at, in that hour, his uh, verse 1, Matthew 18, 1, in that hour his disciples came to, um, to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling a child, he set him in the midst of them, and he said, In truth I tell you, unless you turn and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be like little children? They're so good. No, they're not. They're expert psychologists who know how to manipulate and, 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 uh, and uh, use people. Am I right or wrong? Yeah, just smiling the whole time so sweetly. No, not naive. Trusting. Look at verse 6. So, whoever offends one of these little ones who believe. believes in me. Little children, when, when you've built a relationship of trust, little children trust. Did you ever break a toy when you were little? You take it to your dad or your mom and they say, oh, I can fix it. What was your response then? Okay. Oh, I'm so glad. Then you go back and play with something else. Yes? Because it's going to get fixed. 
right? Dads can do anything. Mm -hmm. Dads can do anything, <laughs> except me. Uh, so, so my point is, the only passage in the New Testament that teaches us to pray for forgiveness is a passage written under the law, about the law and the way the law functions. The law never gives blanket forgiveness. It only gives forgiveness for particulars. Are you with me? Martine, what are you thinking? So where does repentance fit into that? Repentance, oh dear. It's a, no, it's a great question. It's an important question. Um, and I'm unprepared to answer it. <laughs> uh, I can give you this, the, the details, but uh, I'll have to send you to your resources to find them. Um, we think of repentance as grieving over sin. There was a guy I had in a theology class 36 years ago, 35 years ago. Always looked like he was on the, on the, uh, on the verge of breaking into tears. I was too. I was pretty depressed at that point in my life. <laughs> uh, and I said, was talking about joy and the importance of joy in the Christian life. And I said, we, some of us look like, um, what was it? Jay Vernon McGee said, looked like we've been weaned on a dill pickle. <laughs> and, and he said, well... You know, we have to do a thorough sorrowing for our sins. Show me that in Scripture, please. Please show it to me. Show it to me when we're talking about the work of Christ. That's the first thing. Second thing is, uh, we're not paying attention, frankly. Uh, Judas grieved, 2 Corinthians chapter something, chapter 2. Perhaps. Let's see. All this turning pages right in the microphone is not going to sound very good. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. <clears throat> Grieving is not repentance. Verse 5. And if anyone has caused grief, he has not caused me grief, except in part, so that I might not put any burden in part, he has grieved some, uh, all of you. Sufficient to such a one is the, is the blame that came from the many. Therefore, on the contrary, rather, uh, forgive him and encourage him so that uh, such a man will not be um, drowned by the excess of sorrow. Wherefore, oh, this is a good passage. This is not what I'm looking for. Uh, where is that? Second Corinthians chapter ten. What's it say? Yeah, that's not the one I'm looking for. Uh, where is that? Um, Maybe it's seven. Um, ah, yes, this is it. Second uh, Corinthians seven eight. Because if indeed I grieved you by my letter, I don't re regret it. Do you have regret? Yes. Right. That word is translated elsewhere. Uh, repent. 
I don't regret it. It's not, it's not a word for true repentance. Uh, this is regret. I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I, see, for I see that that letter, even if it grieved you for a time, now I rejoice, not that you were grieved, but that you grieved leading to repentance. All right? So first thing is, grief is not repentance, but there are two kinds of grief. Look at the next verse. Um, uh, for you grieved in a godly way, so that you were harmed in no way by us. For godly sorrow uh, produces repentance, leading to salvation not re- that, that, that is not uh, going to change. The sorrow of the world produces death. You can sorrow all you want to, but if it's not a godly sorrow, it's not repentance. That's the first thing. Then. Second thing, in Acts, there are, actually, we find out that there are two focal points on repentance. My pastor, when I was a kid, used to walk away from the pulpit when he was illustrating repentance. You're walking in uh, towards sin, and when you repent, you turn around and you go in the opposite direction. And that was good, but he didn't define what the opposite direction was. Um, and it, it, it's not simply enough to say either that when you repent, you turn and go in another direction. I have to know what direction I go to. If I repent from sin toward obedience, I'm still on the road of the, of the Pharisee. Are you with me here? What, what is sin? Unbelief. Unbelief. Then what do I repent from to? Faith. To faith. So I have no regard for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul says in Romans 3, yes? So, so I, I'm, I'm pursuing a life of sin. I may be a very righteous sinner. <laughs> or to say it better, a, more, a very obedient sinner. But my obedience itself is sin. Because I'm doing it for myself, not for God. I'm doing it for what I can get out of it. Are you with me here? When I repent... I turn away from what I used to love, my own righteousness, to what I used to hate, and still do to a certain degree, and that is the righteousness of God that he gives. I don't want it given. I want to earn it. Are you with me here? So so there are two focal points for righteousness, for repentance. So what, what then is repentance? Repentance is a change in the way you think so that the way you act changes. In our growth process as Christians, we undergo course corrections in our spiritual walk. Our whole life is a life of repentance. And, we, and that, to me, is the repentance. It's when we recognize uh-huh. that we have not seen it right, or mm-hmm. done it right, yeah. and we refocus. Yeah. That's a course correction. Right. It's repentance. Yeah. And so, so look up repent in the book of Acts, or repentance, and you'll find a couple of places you, you, you turn from idols to serve the living God. That's actually in First Thessalonians. There's another one, so turn from idols to serve the living God. So that's a marvelous place. Um, and I've forgotten the other, even the details of the passage. Um, but so, so the point is, there are two focal points. One is that you... you uh, you stop loving what you used to love and begin to hate it. And you begin to love what you used to hate. 
Yes? So you're repenting from sin to God. You're not even repenting to right to righteousness or obedience. You're repenting from sin to God. And that's the critical point in, in repentance. But as, as uh, uh, Kay just said, uh, is that right? Did I get that right? Kay? Yeah. Oh, I could. The last I checked, it was Kay. Yeah. On the way over here, I thought, I'm not going to get through this tonight. I'm, my, I'm getting my tang all tangled around my eye teeth, and I can't say what I'm seeing. So, um, um, so, so her point was, and, and rightly so, our whole life, it's not that I've repented once and I've, I've done penting, right? I live a whole life of repentance, not grieving and sorrowing over sin, but always seeing, okay, this is a new area of my life that now I've, I, I understand how I live before God in this area, if that makes sense. So back to Hebrews 9. Then let's, we've got to go through this tonight because I, I, I've got a huge chunk next week that we've got to deal with. Um, we can do it, but it's got to be done. When I have the cleansing of conscience, I am now free to serve the living God. 914. Um, how much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And that means, folks, when you're on the way to <laughs> a, an opportunity for ministry and you are assailed by your conscience and you think, how can I go with this on my heart? How can I? The answer is, you apply for the cleansing power of the blood of Christ, and you trust it. And folks, I have done this now for a lot of years. It, it, it really is there. I trust God about these things. I have to. I can't go back and change history. I can't go back and make up for the things that I've done. Yes? So I have to trust Jesus. That's the only avenue I have. Um, then... 924 to 28 this sacrifice of Jesus was offered only once let's pick it up at verse 15 <clears throat> your text will start talking about uh, testaments pretty quick in verses 15 and following but I'm going to keep covenant in this all the way through and I'll explain why shortly uh, the word can either mean last will or, and testament or it can mean covenant and um, uh, so because it starts talking about uh, the death of the testator and the and and uh, uh, so on. It, it it has led translators to propose translating this will, but it should be covenant. And there's a particular statement in the passage that necessitates it. So let's pick it up. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has occurred for the redemption of the of the uh, transgressions committed under the first covenant, we who have been called receive the eternal inheritance. We're like Abraham. We're living with the promise. As, as Hebrews 11 will say, we're, we're, we're seeing it and greeting it afar off, living like aliens and strangers in the land. So we have the promise. Abraham had to buy a place to bury, you remember. Yes? Um, we're this way too. We, we are in the same role as Abraham was in, in that hundred years he spent in Canaan waiting for the promises. 
verse 16. For since it is a covenant, um, it was necessary for a death to occur of the one who's making the covenant. Now that sounds like we ought to read it as a will instead of a covenant, doesn't it? But there's a problem in the text. For a covenant is established... How does your text read right at the beginning of verse 17? A a covenant is... In effect. In effect. Valid. Valid. Only when men are dead. Only when men are dead. That's an interesting translation. Another way to translate it... uh, is to say a covenant is established only upon dead bodies. Okay? We assume that it's people. It may not be. Do you remember the covenant-making ritual for Abrahamic covenant? Move your heads in some direction. At Genesis 15, God said, go get a three-year-old ox and a three-year-old, can't remember now, sheep and a and um, several things, cut them in half and lay the pieces opposite each other. <clears throat> and uh, uh, then a, a deep sleep fell on, Ab- on Abraham, remember? Uh, so he's under the haystack fast asleep. And a, a, a smoking oven and a flaming torch went between the pieces. Jeremiah 34, I think it is, explains the significance of that. When you make a covenant in Hebrew, you don't make a covenant, you cut a covenant. And the idea is the kind of the, uh, the moment when the covenant becomes absolutely certain and sure it's established. You take the animals and you cut them in half and you, you and your partner making the covenant walk between them. It's an enacted curse where you say, if, if I break my part of the covenant, you may do to me what we have done to the animals. By the way, do you remember what Abraham did after he cut the animals apart and laid them out? He had to drive the birds of the field away because that's the whole point of the curse. No burial um, left to be devoured by carrion birds. It was a great curse in the Old Testament era. So So the point is that a covenant is only made when there are dead bodies, not humans. And that word is plural. Okay? So it's not Jesus that's in view here. It's, we're saying you can only have, it is Jesus, but it's not Jesus. That plural, though, is not a reference to Jesus. It's a, a reference to the animals you cut in two when you make the covenant. Am I making sense to you? You can go to a wedding, and you can go all the way through the wedding, but if the preacher doesn't say, now I pronounce you man and wife, it didn't work. It's called a performative act. You, you perform what you're saying. You, you, you create now this, this status between these two people. Are, are you with me here? Uh, when the judge says, um, I pronounce you innocent, when he, when he pounds the gavel, the court's over. Yes, it's an act that does something more than just hitting a piece of wood. Yes, so the, the, the passing between the pieces is what's in view here, almost certainly. That plural requires something like this. He goes on then. Um, uh, since, 
the one who is, uh, uh, since it would have no force as long as the one who is making the covenant is alive. What, what are we then saying? The animals die in the place of the, of the covenant maker, yes? So that, so that the animal dies so that the covenant maker doesn't have to. Yes? And then verse 18. <clears throat> um, for this reason, not even the first covenant was, uh, was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken according to the law by Moses to all the people, taking the blood of the uh, oxen and of the goats <clears throat> with water and a, and a scarlet thread and hyssop, uh, he sprinkled the book itself and all the people, saying, uh, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. All right? So far, so good. This is, this is further evidence that I think my interpretation is right. Took the blood of the bulls and the goats and sprinkled the people. Are you with me? So, in symbol, the testator has died. That is, the, ma- the covenant maker has died. <clears throat> now, what is he saying? We've, we've talked about this in the past. But this verse uh, 20 is a quotation from Exodus 24.8. And we talked about this last week in part. When Moses sprinkled the people, he's cleansing them from their physical impurities. From all the things that have made them impure in the past. Yes? Are you with me here? Um, but the blood falls on the people. Some of it doesn't even get to them. Most of it doesn't get to them. Surely they didn't bring all 600,000 fighting men by and sprinkle each one. It would have taken too long. Yes? But he, he kind of slings it out. Most of it's going to land on their clothing. Ladies, what would that make you want? Some soap quick, right? <laughs> and and uh, some of it's going to fall on their skin, but it's all symbolic. But it landed on the outside of their person. What we, what we have said already is Jesus' blood lands on the inside. Uh, figuratively in the cup so that we see and feel and taste, yes, the implications of the cleansing work of Christ. Um, Now verse 21. um, And he says, uh, I'm sorry, uh, both the uh, tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry uh, he sprinkled in the same way with blood. And almost... It is true to say that uh, all things are cleansed by blood according to the law, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is one occasion when, or one circumstance in which uh, purification can come under the law without blood, and that's if you're very poor and you need one of these sacrifices. It's called the sin offering, typically in our translations. It would be better to call it a purification offering. Scholars are coming pretty much to a consensus on that. It's pretty rare in biblical studies to have a consensus. Um, it's a purification offering. For the very poor, they can't bring an animal. So they can bring some flour, and they'll get uh, uh, their purification from that sacrifice. So that's the almost there. That's Leviticus chapter... It's either chapter 4 or the beginning of chapter 5. Um, 
And so verse 22, but verse 23. <clears throat> now notice what has, what has Moses just been doing in our passage? Sprinkling what? What, what? On what has he been sprinkling blood? Everything. Everything? The tabernacle, the, the book of the law? It's been touched by impure people. And it's, um, and it's, um, hmm. when you've got a disease that is easily transmissible, we call it a contagious. Uh, uh, ceremonial purity, uh, impurity is contagious. So that it affects everything that's touched by anyone who's impure. So he sprinkled the tabernacle, the model of heavenly things. Yes? Now look at verse 20, 23. Therefore it was necessary for the, the models of the things that are in heaven to be cleansed by these sacrifices, but for the heavenly things to be cleansed by better sacrifices than these. And that drove me up the wall the first time I read it with understanding. What in the world is he talking about? How can heaven possibly need cleansing? And of course you have to ask the question further, how could the tabernacle itself need cleansing? Um... Leviticus 4 is awfully important here. Um, turn to Leviticus 4 for just a minute. We won't spend a lot of time in it, but it's, it's important for you to see this. When <clears throat> the, in Leviticus 4 at the beginning, we're talking about when the high priest sins and brings guilt on the people. But we're talking in Leviticus 4 about a purification offering. What's defiled when the priest sins and brings guilt on the people? Well, if, if I sin and bring guilt on you, what's defiled? She had the relationship. I think I would, be, I would be defiled. You would be defiled. It's not the way the text reads it. Let's pick it up at verse uh, 3. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he is to present the, the, to the Lord a young, unblemished bull as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. <clears throat> he must bring the bull to the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, slaughter it before the Lord. The anointed priest must then take some of the bull's blood and bring it into the tent of meeting. Uh, the priest is to dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. What is defiled? You sprinkle blood to remove defilement. Yes? Then what's defiled if he's sprinkling it like this? Sanctuary. No, he's not. He's not sprinkling himself. The sanctuary is defiled. The presence of God is defiled. Now that's a weird thought. You know, how can that be? The answer is really fairly simple. We just have to do a little bit of thinking. Um, how often in Israel's history, when they sinned, did God bring the punishment immediately and exactly? Almost never. There are a few signal events, but, but in the, for the most part, he, he says in Psalm 50 that he delayed judgment and people began to think he was as wicked as they were. Um, then the issue is, <clears throat> is God just in dealing with sin? 
We've talked about these two stories before, and I'll do it quickly. The story of Achan and the story of David and Bathsheba. What was the effect, what was the judgment for Achan? He's stoned to death. All of his family's stoned to death. Everything he owned is burned up. Now he put, they put it, brought it all together in the middle of the camp, in the middle of the valley, and built a heap of stones over it so that everyone would remember what happened to, to Achan. What was the just penalty David suffered for, for adultery and premeditated murder? No, that's not what I asked. What was the penalty, the just penalty he suffered for the uh, for adultery and premeditated murder? That's not a just penalty. Any any judge in Dallas that would do that would be we'd be after his head. So, what was the just penalty that came to David for adultery and premeditated murder? None. Observe first that God's not subject to His own law. The law is subject to Him. He makes it. So he doesn't have to do what he requires his creatures to do. The creatures don't have the right to define good and evil. He does. Are you with me? So that's the first thing. Second thing, observe that God may, for his own purposes, delay or simply cancel the penalties of the law. Yes? But then that raises a question that's, that's addressed in Romans 3. 20, all questions are answered in Romans, so <laughs> three twenty-five and twenty-six, um, whom God set forth as a propitiation through faith in His blood, for the demonstration of His righteousness, because of the passing over of sins committed beforehand, in the forbearance of God. Now, hear what Paul says in Romans three twenty-five: Jesus died as a propitiation for sin in order to establish the righteousness of God in passing over ancient sins. Are you with me here? The question stands through the whole Old Testament era, is God genuinely just? And if all you had was the Old Testament, you'd have to say, it teaches me that he's just, I just can't see how. It looks like he doesn't like commoners, and he favors kings. Jen? Yeah. But we're here talking about what the justice that we want for sinners. There are certain sinners. Now, I always want it for you. I never want it for me. I want mercy for me. I want justice for you. <laughs> uh, um, there are certain people in history, you know, and you can name some of them off the top of your head right this minute, whose sins are so egregious, no penalty that the law could levy against them would have been enough. Goering and, and Hitler and, yes? The penalty that Adolf Eichmann suffered was not enough. It was necessary, but it was not enough. These men are so evil, yes? Idi Amin and Pol Pot and we can go on and on naming people. Yes? Well, if, if this is God's justice, then is there any real justice? 
And the answer is yes. How do I know? Because I can look at the cross. A king died on the cross. It's the only example in history when the king went to battle with the enemy and got killed and gains a kingdom by doing it. <laughs> Kings don't go to battle by themselves. They send their armies in their place. This king went to battle with the enemy and died bearing all the sin and all the, all the wrath of God against all the sin for all the Old Testament period for David. Yes? Um, and we can go on and on with that. The, the point, though, is, is enough. The reputation of God is, on, is at stake. When the, when the blood is sprinkled before the veil seven times, where's some of it going to land? On the veil. The tabernacle stood at Shiloh for 300 years. Um, if they practiced the purification offering for 300 years, how stained was that veil? Pretty stained. The stains are there to testify that God is just in dealing with sin, but he, he exercises his justice mercifully by doing it against a substitute. But the substitute, ox's blood, can't really do that much. So the point is going to be here, verse 23, Jesus has to die because even in heaven the reputation of God is on the line. Is he really just? Can you not hear Satan at the throne? You're letting all these people off. You keep saving these people. When we get to Hebrews 11, we'll have the heroes of the faith. Yes, name some of them. What did you say? Yeah, Noah and Sarah and Isaac and Rahab. Jacob. Noah, Rahab. 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 Rahab I can handle. Jephthah and Gideon and Samson. Yeah. If God, look here. You're letting these guys off. They... They are forgiven of their sins. You've done nothing about it. And the, and the cross of Christ silences all of the challenges of Satan against the, right, uh, the righteous just, justice of God. So uh, the, the heavens themselves are cleansed. The, the, we, have, we have to not be judgmental and <laughs> over people we know. Yes. My... Uh, the um, uh, oh, dear me! Uh, the, one thought drives out another. Verse twenty-four. The old the old sacrifice only dealt with, as he says in verse twenty-four, a a tabernacle made with hands, a a pattern of the genuine. That's all the ox blood can clean. But the blood of Christ has cleansed the real tabernacle. So he goes on. But he has entered into heaven himself, into heaven itself, now to appear uh, before the uh, the presence of God for our sake, uh, and not so that he might often offer himself, as the high priest entered into the holy place yearly with with uh, uh, with 
uh, stranger's blood. I don't know, what do you have? Somebody else's or something else's blood? Not his own. Since he would have to uh, suffer often from the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has entered, uh, uh, he has uh, appeared to take away sins through the offering of himself. And insofar as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this the judgment, so also Messiah was offered once to take away the sins of the many. Second time he will appear uh, without sin for those who are awaiting him for salvation. So I have what Abraham never had. Abraham had the experience of hearing the promises from God, hearing God's own voice and speaking that, but nothing about sin precisely. Now I have the, I know the biggest problem I have is myself. It's the problem with the monastic movement. You could leave the world to get away from temptation, but you carry yourself with you pretty much everywhere you go. And so I carry my own mind and my thoughts and my whole bank of memories of everything I've ever done, everything I've ever seen. And I can call them up, many of them at will, things that I wish I could forget. Yes or no? But I have now, as a certain event in the past, the work of Christ, who died once, don't have to keep offering him. Only once was necessary to take away sins. He's now coming back. Since he rose, he will return. If I, if I go and make a place for you, I will come and, and bring you to myself, that where, I'm, where I am, you may be also. Yes? So he's coming back. And if it's certain that he died, if it's certain that he rose, then it's as certain that he will return. And he will return as he went, visibly, obviously, yes, palpably. So when he returns, uh, then all of this that we live in hope will be gone. We'll be living in sight then. Now, chapter 10 then picks up some new aspects of this. Um, let me move to another set of slides here. Chapter 10 sets up the, the replacement of the old covenant of the old sacrifices with the new. So for the law, having a shadow of the good things that are coming and not the very image of the things themselves, folks, the law is good. It's given by God. It's good but it can't do all that we need. It was good for its purpose, but it can't do all that we need. Why would you want to still live in the shadow and not in the reality? So, uh, yearly, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, can never perfect those who come near, since wouldn't they have ceased offering them because they'd have no more consciousness of sins having once been cleansed? Look at what that says. The implication here, folks, is it seems to me is, is certain. The one sacrifice of Christ means cleansing from sins. How many? Which ones? Those I've repented from? All sins. Which, which means that even when I sin 
even in this time as I'm speaking if I'm sinning. This is cleansed too. The task for me, the proper response from me, is to appropriate it and then to trust that God has done it. And I come back to, I, I think, the prayer that I began praying back there, 1986 or 87. is when I started learning this stuff about Hebrews. Um, Lord, here's one more evidence that I'm not saved by anything I can do. That, that sin has proven that if I have any hope before you at all, it's in Jesus. And so by your promise and by your word, I, I claim the cleansing power of his blood for that sin. And I'm not, I'm not going to entertain the challenges, the charges of my own conscience against me anymore. If Satan has no standing in court, where does my conscience get standing in court? So he goes on. What did the sacrifices do? Verse 3. For in them there is a reminder of sins yearly. Every time you repeat a sacrifice, you're reminded of sin. <laughs> it was burdensome. Yeah. And we're free. And we're free. The, uh, so the one sacrifice of Christ means no more reminder of sin. Go show me where the Holy Spirit um, brings our sin against us to, to make us feel guilty and condemned. I'm confident that the Holy Spirit, Spirit does enlighten us to see the sin that we're committing. But I have begun to experience, folks, what I had never thought I would. When, when I become aware of a, of a sin, I don't feel condemned. I feel the grace and love of God in it when he begins to discipline me. And I think, well, this discipline is, is not comfortable, but I'm so thankful that the Lord's doing this and not allowing me to keep going on as I was. Does, am, I, am I communicating to you at all? Does that sound like somebody who's just being light on sin? No. Linda. But back to that same question I have in relation to what you're doing. Yeah. So that's how you would approach praying to mm-hmm. God about your sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Many of us have been taught that when we pray, we should, especially when we know that we're carnal, we need to make a list of all known sin and confess them individually before God. Show me where in Scripture we're taught to do that. It's the Old Covenant that reminds of sin. The New Covenant... God is not using our sin against us. He's not going to bring sin to you, to your consciousness, to, to, to judge you and condemn you. When you feel condemned, that's either your conscience or it's, or it's a demon who's at work in you. Except to say, Lord, even that, I, I claim, you know, when, when I become aware of it, then just go back to the to the cross and claim the cleansing of Christ, Jim. One thing that's been useful for me is to embrace the biblical idea of our weakness. That it is 
contrasted in Hebrews with uh, a sufficient high priest who empathizes yeah. with yeah. just a recognition of what's true yeah. and uh, embrace both sides of it. Yeah. Um, a, a strong man, a really strong, physically strong man, doesn't know weakness because he's actually fairly weak, just doesn't know it. It takes somebody who's omniscient, I'm sorry, omnipotent, to know weakness. Jesus lay in the manger, unable to control his own bodily functions. Couldn't talk. The word could not talk. And had sinful hands touching him. What did this mean to him? He knew weakness. So he full, is fully aware of how weak you feel at times. And he knows it better than you know it. And I know it. Because he has felt our weakness. He knows how weak we are. He remembers that we are dust. Are you, Psalm 103. Yes? So so um, the, the sacrifices uh, only remind of sin. Verse 4 for it's impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. Simply impossible. Now, verses 5 to 9, he is going to replace, he's, he's actually going to quote a passage from Psalm 41 in which um, David is writing about his own experience, becomes a model of what Jesus will be. But there's one thing... Whenever you see a model and when you see a, 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 a reality, the, the reality that the model represents, what's different between the two? What's the same? What's the same between the two? If you see a model ship, ah, that's the USS Constitution. It looks the same. It has the same shape. It has the same colors. It has the same visual presentation. What's different well, the model is only a, a kind of um, weak representation of what the reality is. They called it, what, what's the name, the nickname of the USS Constitution? Ironside. Old Ironsides. Why? Well, no, <laughs> the, the, yeah, the cannonballs just bounced off. The, the wood that they used was so thick and so strong that it, the cannonballs just bounced off. Uh, if I shot a cannon at the model of the USS Constitution, it wouldn't bounce off. <laughs> so, so the point is that the, that the reality is so much greater, so much more amazing than the model is that I can say things about even the model or from the statements about the model that, that are true about the reality, but the reality is going to exceed it ex excessively. So I come to verse 5. For this reason, when he came into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Body you have, you have prepared for me. Whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. This is, by the way, that phrase always in the Old Testament translates uh, the sin offering. So the sa sacrifices for sin or we should, we should now begin to talk about the purification offering. Whole burnt offerings and purification offerings you took no, no pleasure in. 
Now, how can he say that? God commanded them. Because when sinful people make them, they're tainted from the very beginning. They're, they're always weak. And it's only a dumb ox who has no part in making the sacrifice except to just die. No ox going to sacrifice went willingly. Yes? Then I said, Behold, I come. In the volume, in the, in the uh, scroll of the, uh, uh, in the book of the scroll, it is written about me to do your will. This one who is coming comes willingly. He's not like any old ox. He's like the, the oxen are like him. He's not like the oxen. And then verse 8, above when he says, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire or take pleasure in, these are the things offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. Now let me stop and say, um, we're not sacrifice less in our in our in our lives, but we but we have a different order of sacrifice that we make. There are lots of sacrifices the New Testament calls on us to make, and they're not primarily monetary; <laughs> they're personal in time. Um, perhaps sometime we'll have an occasion when we can talk about that. But the kind of sacrifice, the order of sacrifice that the law of Moses had was the order of sacrifice that dealt with sin. The order of sacrifice we have is ministry to people. That was killing to, 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 uh, to set the sinner free from the necessity of death. Yes? This is the sacrifice that has, the, the, the sacrifice of Christ has, has replaced that whole order of sacrifice. No more do we need to bring at, bring burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and all the sacrifices for sin and so forth because it's all done you know this but it's important that you understand it I did a calculation once and I don't trust my calculation but it's not too far off if I, if, if I counted through all the national sacrifices necessary for Israel to make through the term that the tabernacle was supposed to be functioning or temple if, if they built it in 1445 B.C., and if it lasted, it didn't, but if it lasted all the way to 70 A.D., and if they were faithful in making all the nationals, I'm not talking about any private personal sacrifices, just the national sacrifices, in that period they would have had to make about a million sacrifices. <laughs> uh, and, and yet none of them took away sin. All of them were reminders of sin. Those are just the national sacrifices, not the personal ones. Now I replace all of that with one. And he goes on. Um, he takes away the first to establish the second, verse 10, by which will we have been sanctified. I've got to deal with this concept of sanctification. We only have 17 minutes left, but we only have uh, eight verses to go. So maybe we can do this. Sanctification, unfortunately, has been co-opted by theology. They don't have a better term. 
it's been co-opted by our theology to, you, to, to refer to the process of growth in, spir- in spirituality, in spiritual maturity. The New Testament does use the word that way, but not very often, only a very few times. Um, so what does it mean here? It means the same thing that it meant back in chapter 2. Both, the, both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for this reason. He is not ashamed to, be call, to, to call them brothers. Do you remember this in chapter 2? Yes or no? No. All right. Okay, what's well, in chapter 2? Go back and look at it. <laughs> it's around verse 10 or so. Um, uh, uh, so what did it mean there? <clears throat> when, I look, when I look at the Bible, <laughs> uh, if you want to understand what a biblical word means, why go look it up in a dictionary? Why not go to the Bible? Try to find out what it means in the Bible. That's what they're doing. My favorite professor said, many students come to Dallas Seminary to learn Greek and Hebrew so that they will never have to read another commentary. And I thought, that's pretty much why I'm here. <laughs> he said, this is a very arrogant attitude. What? <laughs> he said, if the, if the Holy Spirit has put the gift of teaching in the church, he has enshrined a great part of that teaching in the great books of the church. And to cut ourselves off from the great books of the church is to cut ourselves off from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then he said, moreover, he said, a, a Greek dictionary or a Hebrew dictionary is just an odd form of a commentary. The people who write them are explaining what they think they're finding in the text, but they can be wrong. So if, <laughs> so if you're learning from commentaries, why are you avoiding reading commentaries? Are you with me here? Yes? So uh, the, the, the great question then is, well, what, is it, what does it mean when one person sanctifies another person? In the Old Testament, God sanctifies Aaron. Does Aaron become a more godly, more obedient person through the sanctification? No. God sanctifies the priesthood. Does the priesthood become godly, more obedient? I Let me name you two priests, three, uh, Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Were Hophni and Phinehas sanctified? Yes. yes. Were they more righteous? No. no. They were more wicked because they had more opportunity for wickedness. God sanctified Israel in the camp because of his presence in the camp. Were they more righteous? <laughs> they were set apart. They're put into a relationship. We have come into the, into the camp, as he's going to talk later in chapter 12, about going outside the camp. We are in a camp, as it were. It's kind of reverse camp. You, uh, you have to go out, out of the camp of Israel to get to the camp of the Messiah. So when you're in the camp of the Messiah, um, in that camp, his presence dominates, and that sanctifies us. It's a status. Remember 1 Corinthians 7? Um, the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believer. Otherwise, your children were unclean, but now are they holy? <laughs> he said, I don't know what that means. But uh, you've got holy children and a sanctified, unbelieving spouse. 
more obedient, more righteous? No. Because he says shortly after that in 1 Corinthians 7, that's 14, 7, I think it's 14, could be 11, 7, 14, I think it is. A couple of verses later, he says, how do you know, O wife, whether you might save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you might save your wife? Are you with me here? So there's no guaranteed outcome. But we're in the community of the Messiah, and having been in the community of Messiah, we have been sanctified. What if I leave? What if the non-believing spouse divorces his wife? He's not still sanctified. Was he saved and then lost his salvation? No, he didn't have salvation. But he, but he was in a peculiar relationship to God because of the presence of God in the home. Do you, you see the point? We're in the body of Christ. We're, I don't even want to use that language. Hebrews doesn't. We're in the community of the Messiah. And in the community of the Messiah, the, the, the Lord is present. And when he is present, even the non-believers among us are sanctified. Same thing with Judas. As long as he was in the disciple band, he was sanctified by the presence of Christ. Under the umbrella with us. And if they stay long enough, remember the chart with the A, B, and C? If they stay long enough, there's an odd reality of human life. When you suffer for a cause, you begin to love it more. In fact, you begin to love it. It's astonishing. If you run from it, then you may come to hate it. But if you will stay in the suffering, you're going to love that that cause. um, I thought I loved America till I got out of the army, and I thought, oh, I, I never really loved America. I understand more of what it means now. A- am I making sense to you? The, uh, so so we are, we are as, as we are in the community of the Messiah, we are sanctified. Now, that's important that you get this down, because later in chapter 10, next week, we're going to look at a very difficult passage. We have three key passages we have to talk about in the material that comes up next week. So don't miss next week if you can possibly uh, make it um, critical. Chapter 10 has that, uh, if we sin willfully after coming to the knowledge of the truth, that passage, that's, that's critical. It's actually more difficult than chapter 6 is. And so we'll have to deal with that next week, and we'll deal with it right off the bat, virtually. But uh, And he will talk about sanctification there again. So... There's a person in chapter 10, toward the end of the chapter, who used to be sanctified by the blood of Christ. We'll have to talk about it. Verse 11. And every high priest... um, Let's see. And every high priest uh, stood daily uh, doing his ministry and offering, (laughs) the Greek word order is fascinating, and the same often offering sacrifices. (laughs) You you go in and you sprinkle the blood from a sin offering, you come out and there's somebody else who's got to make another sin offering. So you gather the blood and you go in and you sprinkle the offering, you come out and somebody else has got another sin offering. Go in and you sprinkle the blood. You're always washing your hands, kind of like a doctor. You're washing your hands. Are you with me? So over and over and over again, there's never a place to have an end. 
I worked for an evangelist when I was in seminary. I worked in the mailroom. And when I'd get one mailing complete and at the post office, two more came in. <laughs> I would get this done. There's no getting done in a mailroom, for an evangelist especially. <laughs> so so these are, this is what these people are doing. They're offering the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this one, having offered one sacrifice for sins, forever has sat down at the right hand of God. And that, that expression forever is between the two statements. Offering one sacrifice, and he has sat down. Has he sat down forever? Well, yeah. Did he offer one sacrifice forever? Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an eternal, everlasting effect to his sacrifice. Uh, he has sat down at the right hand of God, for the rest waiting until his enemies become the stool of his feet. Now, you know that the, that the tabernacle had no place to sit because there was no time when the job was done. This, man, this one, this high priest, has sat down. And where? Uh, on the throne of God. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. But he's also, uh, you, you forget that he's not just a human being, he's also God, and so he's always there. He's omnipresent, and he's locally recognizable in the, in the body still. So the two go together. So verse uh, 14, For by one sacrifice he has perfected forever those who are... Let me, let me add a one word to the text here. It's not going to change the meaning, but it's going to clarify the meaning. This is what the, the, this grammatical form means in Greek. It, it is stressing continuing action. So he has, sanct- he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And what does it mean to be to be being sanctified? We're pre- yeah, doing what? Yes. <laughs> what does it mean to be sanctified? What have we just been saying? You're staying in the relationship. You're not abandoning the camp. Whether you're a believer or not, if you're in the camp, you're being sanctified. Yes? Uh, so, so he testifies, uh, the Holy Spirit testifies, for after he said, after this, he said, this, notice he goes back to chapter 8, this is the covenant which I will conclude with them after those days, says the Lord, when I put my laws upon their hearts and write them on their understanding and their sins and their lawless acts, I will remember no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no more sacrifice for sins. Any sin you become aware of, then, has to be covered by this one sacrifice. It's not that I have to get it covered, it's already covered by that one sacrifice. What I have to do is to begin to experience it personally. And the way to do it is by trusting God. Is God's word true and valid? Except with reference to some sin you committed? Yeah, sometimes we feel that way. Yeah, but how can he forgive this? How can he not? 
if he can if he can forgive. Psalm fifty, folks, is, is a fascinating Psalm, Psalm fifty one. I'm sorry, Psalm fifty one is a fascinating Psalm. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why uh, why are you so far from the, the words of my groaning from saving me? I cry out by day and you do not answer, and by night and there is silence for me. You know the Psalm, right? When was it written? Was it written before Nathan came to David? After Nathan came, but before Nathan pronounced forgiveness? Or after Nathan pronounced forgiveness? After? Um, But the psalm is asking for forgiveness. So why would he write it after? I think you're right, Jan. After. Then why would he ask, write a psalm asking for forgiveness after he's forgiven? He didn't feel forgiven. I don't think so. Look, look at Psalm 51 and with this will close. Look at look at the heading of the psalm. For the choir director, this, by the way, is verse 1 and verse 2 of the psalm in Hebrew. For the choir director, a Davidic psalm, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your faithful love. How can he? There is no sacrifice for adultery. How can he be gracious to David? There is no sacrifice for premeditated murder. The culprit must be put to death. And yet, he says, um, verse 14, Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. How can he? The law of Moses makes no provision for it. There is no sacrifice. How can he pray for these things? Is he audacious beyond belief? Or is there something else going on? And I, I think there's something else going, going on. And let me show you where it is. It's, in, in fact, in verses uh, 14. Um, it's actually in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Huh, he thinks he's actually going to be forgiven? Or he knows he's already forgiven and he's writing this as a model for grief-stricken, destroyed people because of their own sin. A model. If a man who's committed adultery and premeditated murder can be forgiven by God, then what sin cannot be forgiven by God? He committed a judicial murder. A governmental murder used the power of his office to destroy a man who could destroy him. He blasphemed the name of God, caused the the nations around to blaspheme God. And he's forgiven? Yeah, he's forgiven. And so this becomes the model. So he says in verse 13, Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. 
How does he know that? Because he's a sinner who's returned to God. And he can tell people, look, when you have no ground, there's no, there's no sacrifice you can bring. You can go to God and he will forgive. Be gracious to me, O God, not because I made the sacrifice, but because of your loving kindness, because of the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Are you with me here? So Psalm 51 turns out to be a didactic psalm. It's not really a penitential psalm. It's not David pleading with God for forgiveness. It's David showing broken sinners. Look, look a little later, in fact, um, verse uh, uh, 18, I'm sorry, uh, verse 16. You do not want sacrifice. And I must add here, these are worship sacrifices that he's re- referring to. I, I can't go to the altar and, sac- and worship because I'm defiled by my sin. You do not want sacrifice, or I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. Uh, Oh God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. Are you with me? So he's showing people, if you're broken by your sin, there is forgiveness with God. He didn't understand the just basis of it. You and I now do. We looked at Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. The just basis of it is the the one sacrifice of Christ who has made one sacrifice forever. It it everlastingly has efficacy. And because of it, he has sat down at the right hand of God forever. And so it is a royal act. It is a divine act. And it is an act that we can trust even at our most broken so, uh, grace reaches back into yeah, and yes, yes. So he he deals with the sin of David. He deals with the sins of Israel that he over and over forgave. Yes, but now we see the just basis on which he did it. Um, I said I'd close with that, but I got to deal with one other thing in the parable of the unforgiving unforgiving servant. You know that parable, yeah. yeah? Why does the master revoke the forgiveness of the debt? Because he doesn't forgive. But is, is that just? And the answer is yes, it is just, and here's why. There was no just basis for the forgiveness. It was complete mercy. Um, I have a mortgage on my house. You'll be shocked to know this, but I have a mortgage on my house. And if one of you, out of the goodness of your heart, wrote to my, co- my mortgage company and say, said, I want to pay off Jim's mortgage, uh, uh, they would take your check. Hmm? Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, they would take your check, and I would get a letter saying, your mortgage is, is now paid in full. And I'll call them up and say, what happened? Well, somebody called and wanted to pay for it. <clears throat> Can they reimpose the mortgage on me? No. Because there's a just payment for the forgiveness of the debt. That is, there's no forgiveness of the debt. It's a just payment. It is remitted completely. Yes? The master had no just basis. It was simple mercy. Are you you with me here? So when when God then forgives our sins, it is not mere mercy. It is justice too. It's just to Christ. 
in recognizing the fullness of his payment. It's just to you because you have found your hope in Christ. Are you with me here? But I don't get justice. Jesus got my justice. Let's close with prayer. Father, this is this is astonishing. And even as I say these things, I think, are they really true? Can this really be true? And yet I don't know what else to do with what you've said in your words. So give us hope, Father. Turn us back to Jesus, always keeping him before ourselves so that we focus on him and are reflecting him in the world. But all the more turn us back to Jesus when in the midst of our consciousness of our sin we feel so defiled, so broken, and remind us at such times that that brokenness is a sacrifice you desire. So, Father, uh, we're yours. Um, Help us to feed deeply on these things. Make Jesus everything to us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.